Hey, listeners, just as a heads up, this episode is dealing with medically, medical assistance in dying. And as a result, the discussion involves um, a lot of mentions of death, suicide, medically, medically assisted death, as well as fairly graphic descriptions of a terminal ca- cancer patients last week's. Um, if these are things that you find upsetting, this might not be the episode for you, but we thought it was really important to discuss this and not... Uh, mince words or spare details um so thanks so much for listening um and on with the episode hello and welcome to talking sense the sensibility podcast i'm your co-host kat i'm your co-host Aaron, and i'm your guest today josh many yeah <laughs> yeah can you uh tell us about yourself josh so well other than my name being josh um <laughs> I'll kind of maybe go back to the very start. So um, I'm 27 years old. Um, my, the sort of areas that I'm really interested in is, is particularly social care. You know, um, I've got a massive background, um, not only working there, but, you know, um, I've got, I'm neurodiverse myself. Um, and, you know, I've got family members who are disabled. And so I've, I've kind of been an un, unpaid carer most of my life um, in certain, you know, different sort of, roles and stuff to different various family members. Um, I got involved in politics. It, it would have been about 2014, 2015, I became a proper activist. But before then, I remember what sort of ignited my um, passion for politics was the 2014 referendum on Scottish independence. And back then, the reason I got so involved was because, um, you know, my, <laughs> I, come from a, I came from a long line of um, old traditional Labour supporters. And... Um, um, I actually, you know, during the 2014 independence referendum, I went and, you know, doing a lot of research to strengthen my arguments as to why Scotland would be better together in the UK. Um, and then the more research I did, um, it sort of dawned on me. I thought, oh, oh my goodness, I think I'm pro-independence all of a sudden. It was like a light bulb moment. Um, and it was really funny because my sister at the exact same moment had the same light bulb moment and we all you know, got really involved in the independence campaign, joined the SNP, and I've been involved in various campaigns since. So can you tell us more about the Dignity and Dying campaign? Like, I, I, I know of it, just, I just kind of, uh, intellect, like, not intellectually, what am I trying to say? I just like kind of inherently, I'm like, yes, Dignity and Dying, I believe, I support that, but I don't know much about the details of the campaign itself and, and like your involvement with it. So I'll, I'll maybe... Um, talk about you know why sort of dignity and dying came on, came on my radar, and then I'll talk about what what the campaign is about. Um, so you know last year, um, and this is kind of like why I got so involved in it. Last year, my my grandma, um, eighty four years old, had really ill health. She you know lived with um, ill health for a long time towards the end of her life. Um, Basically, what happened was I I was living in Glasgow at the time, and I got a phone call from my mum, um, up in Aberdeen. My my family live in Aberdeen, and um, you know, we knew my grandma wasn't well for a long time, and you know, it was only sort of a, we knew it was coming around the corner. Basically, um, I got a phone call from my mum in Glasgow, and she says, you know, Josh, um, it was like ten o'clock at night or something, and I was working the next day at eight in the morning. The, there was like yellow warnings, travel warnings, because it's flashing down thunderous night, like you couldn't make it up. 
phone call from my mum, you know, the phone rings. I'm like, hello, how are you doing, mum? She's like, Josh, you know, it's not good. You know, you need to come home. Grandma's grandma's not well. Um, spoke to the doctors and they said she's got days left to live or she's, she's, she's going to go any time, actually. That's the word she used. Doctor said she can go any time. I think she'd come in the morning. So I says, well, stuff coming in the morning. I'll come up now. Um, but obviously at the time, I was in a, in a little pokey flat. I didn't realise how bad the weather was. Uh, but anyway, managed to travel up to Aberdeen. You know, got there at about two in the morning, um, like half one, two in the morning, I think. <clears throat> and, you know, drove up to my grandma's house and, you know, seen her in that incapacitated state. Um, I think she'd been like, you know, given something to knock her out for a while. And uh, I think there was nurses in her or something. But yeah, um, <clears throat> we kind of had the converse, the nurses and you know, medical professionals kind of had the conversation uh, with the family, like, look, she's going to pass, you know, she's um, she'd just been diagnosed with a cancerous tumour in her throat. Um, wasn't good. She had multiple organ failure, bed ridden, you know, the lot. Um, so I kind of thought, well, my background social care, I'm the care of the family. I um I, I said, well, I'm going to stay here with Grandma until, you know, she kind of moves on. So um, it was a few days later. Um, my Grandma was in and out of consciousness talking to us, but every time she's awake, she's going, oh, I'm in agony, I'm in so much pain. When's this going to stop? I just need to go. I need to go. Tell the doctors I need to go. You know, they wouldn't, wouldn't let an animal suffer like this, is, is what she kept saying. They wouldn't let an animal suffer like this. And, you know, seeing seeing someone you love so much, you know, asking to die, saying I want to, I'm in so much pain, I no longer want to be here, is a horrendous thing, really horrendous. But that, that wasn't really the worst of it in those those first few days. Um, you know, it got so bad. Um, my grandma and the medical professionals, you know, came to the decision together. My, my grandma said she wanted to die in her own home, so she, the, we we had a support package in place. Family were giving round the clock here for when you know nurses and carers couldn't be in. So um, after a few days of me being there, I think it was like four or five days maybe, um, my grandma and the medical professionals made the joint decision together that she'd come off of food and fluids. So um, basically choosing to die within a few days, you know, that's that's kind of a... That's kind of how they do it, assisted dying today. They make people starve and starve themselves to death and, you know, die of thirst until they die, basically. Which to me is inhumane. <laughs> um, but it says, you know, she's a choking risk now. That's it. And um, still, my grandma's in and out of consciousness, still able to make decisions and, you know, do things. Well, it, when they're in bed, but, you know, have conversations and stuff. So... Um, when the nurses, well, when the, the medical professionals, nurse and doctor spoke to the family, says, look, your your mum, your slash your grandma has, um, you know, made the decision in line with us, you know, that she's going to come off food and fluids. So um, that's kind of it now. It's about, now it's about making her comfortable. It says, you know, people who are off food and fluids don't live longer than four days. Um, and, you know, when the medical professional said that, Looking back now, I wish that was the case um, because she didn't live for four days. She lingered, struggled in immense pain for 13 days without food, without fluids. 
every time she was conscious, you know, they're giving her maximum dosages of um, morphine. And every time she'd wake up, she'd go, oh, oh, pain, oh, sore agony. You know, saying, when's it time? When's it time? When's God going to take me? My grandma was a very religious woman. You know, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm a... I'm not religious at all. I don't believe in God, but my, my grandma did and respected that. And, <clears throat> you know, um, so this, this is a woman who was devoutly Catholic, devoutly religious woman. She was ready to meet her maker. She was asking to die. Um, and she would have taken that choice had she, she would have taken the choice for us to die and had she had that option, but she didn't. Now there lies the issue. Um, so, you know, through those 13 days, um, you know, myself and my my mum, my, my aunties, my cousins, my sisters, my brothers were given round the clock care to my grandma. I was the predominant carer. I, I, I moved in there for 13 days, whereas my family members are going home back and forth, you know, taking shifts. There's always two or three, sometimes four of us in the house taking shifts because there's so much work looking after a dying person. Um, and, you know, Towards the end, it got to the point where my grandma was then, oh, it's really awful to talk about. And it took me a long time to talk about it. I still get emotional about it now. I've got goosebumps talking about it now. Um, towards the end, um, the past, probably the end, three, four days, my grandma started to drown in her own bodily fluids. Um, and then she was unable to talk anymore because of the bodily fluids. That constant gargle. Drowning on bodily fluids, whatever the hell it was, and it was so severe to the point it was spilling out of her mouth, pouring over. I remember, you know, I just cleaned out my grandma's mouth while I'm crying over my grandma's, you know, lingering body. Quickly, um, you know, got rid of all my, my gloves, the tissues, everything. Went through to the living room just to go, like, oh, have a breather for five minutes. My mum, my mum went through to see, you know, her mum. And she was in there for 10 seconds and I heard this almighty scream, ah! And then I was like, oh my goodness, what's happened? You know, thinking my grandma just passed or something. And then I walked through to find my mum vomiting in the, the bathroom at how horrendous the sight was of her own mother, you know, because as soon as I'd left, more had come up, erupted out of her mouth. Um, So that was the kind of undignified, horrendous, painful, torturous death that my grandma lived through in the end days. A proud woman. That, and that's something that should never have happened because she wouldn't have chosen that had she been given the choice. So that's why, you know, before my grandma did pass, I had a conversation with her when she was still able to talk in those final days. I, I made a promise to her that um, I would do everything I could to make sure no one else has to go through what she was going through at that time. And I intend to stick to that promise. That's why I've been so vocal about this campaign, Dignity and Dying. And, you know, as soon as it happened, I, I remember putting up a post on social media <clears throat> about, you know, what had happened and the horrendous circumstances my grandma died in. Um, and then I kind of linked up with the Dignity and Dying campaign and the rest is history. Now, what they're calling for um, is a safe, compassionate law in Scotland to give people, um, you know, the choice of the, the care they receive at the end of their life 
access to all options on the table should they wish to choose it, you know, an end to their life, and control over how they die. Um, and this, the bill that's, you know, kind of been, the bill that's been announced that will be coming through the Scottish Parliament um, is about people who are deemed to be terminally ill and six months left to live. Um, so unless you, unless you have been deemed terminally ill and, you know, have got six months or less to live, then you wouldn't be entitled um, to use the safe sort of access to assisted dying. Um, so that's the bill that I'm supporting, and that's the campaign that um, I'm supporting in Scotland. It's um, as you talk about your your grandma. What strikes me is not only how horrific it was, but how common that is. My grandpa had a esophageal tumor that was inoperable that he ended up dying from as well, and it wasn't it wasn't the same story uh, that you have. They they did chemo on it for years um they gave him two years to live and he lived maybe three or four um and i think many times i mean he straight up told me many times that like he wished he only had six months he wished that it was over he wished he wasn't wasting away which my great uncle had gotten cancer and died like within 30 days and he was so jealous and just jealous of him because of what he had gone through and near the end um you know the american medical system is not a great one uh I mean, they have great skills, but sometimes there's unnecessary harm done. What what they did is uh, put a spring in his throat to open it up, and he was dead within five days. But I think that's probably what prevented the same thing from happening. You know, why do we have these take people off of water? Why do we have these risky procedures to just help their lives a little bit and give them, you know, he has two weeks, but we can make his last two weeks more comfortable if we give him the surgery. Like, what... I don't quite understand what the difference is between that and, and being able to decide you're done. Yeah, I, I, like you, you saying that just sort of brings back what the medical professionals were saying was, you know, we'll make her comfortable. Palliative care now is excellent. We can make sure, you know, there's no sort of pain. There's no comfort in what my grandma went through. <laughs> no matter how much morphine she was given, she was in agonizing pain. You know, it's, it was hor horrible. So, um, an assisted dying bill has been through the Scottish Parliament twice before. Um, both times it has, it has gone to the vote and it's fallen, it's failed. Parliamentarians, MSPs in Scotland, chose to chose to vote down um, a bill on assisted dying. Now, to me, um, that that sort of has displayed that in Scotland historically that the Scottish Parliament's been out of touch with the feeling of the people of Scotland because 87% of people in Scotland support assisted dying in this country. So why is it that Parliament isn't representative of the wishes of the people of Scotland? Well, it's my hope now that with this new Parliament, the new elections that have just happened in Scotland, that um, with the new parliamentarians coming through, that Parliament is now um, representative of the Scottish people. So, but only time will tell. I mean, you, you know, it was in the media a, a month or two ago that um, parliamentarians are bringing forward a new bill for the, the third time, lucky, hopefully, um, on assisted dying. So hopefully this is it. Um, but it's really important to have these conversations like we're having now in this podcast as to why assisted dying is necessary. I understand there is opposition to it um, in, in regards to, um, you know, disability organisations or some people with disabilities. 
Um, but this is about a rights-based approach. Aaron is more familiar with some of the concerns. So maybe Aaron can bring up some of the concerns and we can try and talk about those. I was going to, yeah, I was going to jump in there. So obviously I'm from Canada, which was um, the first Commonwealth country to legalize assisted dying uh, back in 2016. Um Actually, my I've, I've got a similar story to both of you. With my my grandma also um, died a very slow death of uh, metastasized lung cancer, uh, but that was before Canada had assisted dying, and she also had a very slow death at home. Um, I don't know what she would have chosen, but that was not it was not a good death, um, and. So I was, I am still very supportive of assisted dying, having sort of, I wasn't there to see it because I was here, but, you know, having sort of secondhand experienced that. Um, and I was very supportive of Canada bringing in assisted dying in 2016. Um, however, I know within the sort of disability community, there is a lot of controversy over assisted dying um, because of Canada, actually, because of the way things have gone in Canada since assisted dying was um, was brought in. Um, I know like all of us here are in one way or another part of the disability community as well. But so some of the concerns um, in around what's happened in Canada is it started with assisted dying, but um, through various court cases and through legislation that might be being brought in presently, um, it's looking at expansion to people who aren't terminally ill, but who are who kind of deem themselves to be in sort of um, a degenerative condition or intolerable pain. They're also bringing in allowing um, the use of advanced directives. Um, so while the campaign in Scotland right now is only for people to be able to end their own lives as opposed to having the doctor do it, um, in Canada, they're allowing the use of advanced directives, um, which by necessity requires um, somebody else to do it. Um, so this, I know, has prompted some controversy in the disability community over whether or not um, this is going to lead to people being pressured by their families um, to end their lives, um, especially because in the case of, of Canada, um, there isn't really good disability support. Um, the disability support here is somewhat better than Canada, but that's not saying much because it's virtually non-existent in Canada. Um, so I guess the, the question is, is while what is being proposed by Dignity and Dying, um, the Dignity and Dying campaign is, is very good and very clear and I'm very supportive of it. Um, the question is how do we answer the questions of what is the next step if, if, if we see things play out the way they have in Canada? Um, well, what's been proposed in Scotland is simply if you're deemed to be terminally ill and if you're disabled that'll only include you if you're deemed to be terminally ill and you know presumed to die within six months um so quite often i've found you know that people are sort of conflating terminally ill with disabilities um and they're to me they're two entirely separate issues um coming from my background in social care it's always, always, always been drummed into me and, and my, my former colleagues in social care that when you're given a person care, it's about person-centred support. So the person that you're supporting is involved in the decision-making of their care and how that's delivered. 
every step of the way, in every aspect to do. So why is that the case until the very end, until they're waiting to die? You know, there is a solution out there for people to, to be given excellent care, you know, and given the choice of a safe and compassionate death. And that is also, you know, safeguarding the rights of dying people. So to me, working in disabilities, my whole working career, you know, I'm passionate about disabilities rights and protecting and safeguarding people with disabilities. Because I know they've been fairly treated um, systemically in the UK and Scotland, everywhere around the world. But you can advance dis disabled rights as well as that, as well as advancing the rights of dying people. They're not mutually exclusive. I, I suppose um, perhaps the question would be, maybe we need to do some work. Would it help maybe to do some work to see what led Canada down this path? What what are some of the pitfalls we can avoid? And, and I don't know what they are off the top of my head, obviously. But um, maybe it's, you know, maybe I think you're right, Josh. I think we need to draw a firm line in between these things, right? Because there are people who are genuinely worried and there are people who will fear monger. Uh, to prevent this because they don't they don't believe in in the bill yeah i mean there's been a lot of fear-mongering and this is this happens all the time with you know lgbt rights as well women's rights uh, often come from the the christian or religious fundamentalist right um this fear-mongering people thinking medical professionals and family members are going to press their families into killing themselves when you, you will not have the choice to, to end your life unless you're deemed to be terminally ill. Get it signed off. In Scotland, there's also a lot of safeguards in place that's being proposed as well. So Dignity and Dine, Dignity and Dine are proposing that um, not only do some, does someone, you know, to be able to go through um, with it, um, they need to have two medical professionals um, sign it off, you know, making sure the person hasn't been pressured. The person is competent to make the decision. Two medical professionals, and then in addition to that, a judge needs to sign it off again, making sure they haven't been pressured. You know, making the decision to kill themselves. Um, so there, there, there are three safeguards there put in place already to protect um, dying people. Um, but the choice needs to be there. It doesn't. It, it doesn't change the fact that this is about taking a rights-based approach. And I'll, I'll always, you know, I'll always campaign to, to um, advance people's rights, whatever, um, you know, whenever, whenever it's necessary. And, you know, what I witnessed my grandma go through isn't something anyone should ever have to live through. And at the end of the day, that's, you know, the, the people should have the choice. Um, you know, because let's not forget, people already have access to assisted dying in Scotland if they have the money to do it. So it's also, it also comes down to a class issue where wealthy or middle-class dying people can go, to can go to Dignitas in Switzerland if they've got the 10 grand to splash. People can already do this, can already end their life if they choose to do so. So this is about, this is about giving it, rolling out the access to all people, all dying people in Scotland. Um, because if you're in horrendous, torturous pain, but you got the 10 grand to go and splash and go to Switzerland, then, you know, you don't have to endure that horrible death that um, too, too many people do have to endure, so. I do find it useful to hear how, uh, you explain that, Erin, because it, it to me, I, I hear all the things that went wrong and all the steps that went wrong. And I think 
of all the things that I, I would I would picture Scotland doing differently in each step of the way going, oh, maybe we wouldn't get to that point because, you know, instead of saying like, this is uh, trying to guarantee a right for everyone to choose their temperature. It's saying if you fall in these criteria, then you should have this available to you. And, and let me let me add one more thing to that. You know, the reason that's been put in place, you know, the six months left to to live type of thing, is because you mentioned earlier, Erin, about you know people ending their lives early when they could have you know and sort of enjoyed a, a longer period of time with their family, enjoying life. Um, you know, there's case studies out there. There's a book called Last Rites, fantastic book, highly recommend the read. Like the read. Um, but people who have been terminally ill have ended their lives months or years early um, because th their body's deteriorating so fast to think, well, I better end my life while I can um, because I don't want to linger on for um, months or years you know, in horrible pain and not have control over my own death. So, you know, having that choice there for people towards the end of their life may have still deteriorated, etc., but they still have um, that option, you know, towards the end, they can still enjoy a lot more time with their family um, before, you know, they pass on. I do have, um, I do have... A story of, you know, when this isn't available to someone. I don't I don't know if anybody else how common this is of of having somebody in their family kind of bullied, pressured, pressured someone else, pressured their kid into helping them. And that has left lasting damage and like the psychological damage that that places on your family, you know, because and you don't want to blame the person who's in so much horrendous pain. This isn't guaranteeing everybody is going to have a great death, right? Because who can guarantee that? But if we can help some people, I, I get behind that. Yeah. And, you know, there's things, personal moments, you know, which happened during that time that I was with my grandma and my family that it, it was horrendous. You know, the thoughts going through your head um, and, you know, when you're thinking, how best can I support my grandma in this situation? And um, really, I mean, I know from from my point of view, what happened, um, what my grandma went through will live with me forever. It'll never leave me. Um, but it's nothing in comparison to what she went through. And, you know, I talk about my PTSD symptoms I have on the back of that. Well, my mum watched her mum. Yeah, and I mean, I completely agree with you. I'm bringing up the the Canada case research. I know this is something that's sort of controversial, so I was was kind of hoping just kind of give you a chance to to address it. Um, because I completely agree with you. My my grandmother's death was not not what you would call a good death, and I think it's really important that you've brought up that you know your grandma had the best care she could have in terms of the fact that she was at home. She was getting maximum doses of pain relief. She had 24 hour care because something that is brought up um, over and over again, when an um, assisted dying comes up is um, people try to contrast it with having good palliative care. And we wouldn't need assisted dying if we had good palliative care, but even with the best pain medication we have available with people who, you know, love you and are there for you 24 seven, that can't save you from yeah and i, I spoke to you know because I've, I've been i've went to a few events i've been invited as a you know panel speaker and stuff at events where they're discussing and dying 
and you know hospice workers have come up to me and says oh but there's, there's brilliant hospice care that's brilliant why didn't your grandma go to hospice and i said my grandma didn't want to die in a hospice she wanted to die in her own home with her family surrounded you know around her um but she didn't want to go through the horrendous pain she did she wanted to die in that safe environment you know my grandma was a religious woman she had all her her crosses and her pictures and all that sort of stuff and the people she loved around her you know it's kind of funny because <laughs> at first you know it was like to have so many loved ones and stuff around you when you're dying is, is mm-hmm. kind of goals because we're all gonna die yeah. pretty much you know but and mm-hmm. when we all die we want the people we love to be around us don't we to feel loved cared for and all the rest of it um and she had that she had that she just went through a, a horrible time mm. but the assisted dying campaign dignity and dying campaign i believe is the solution um when there's so many safeguards put in place so that's why i'm really in support um of this bill that's coming forward um because to me you know lived experience should be at the heart of everything we do yeah definitely wait before we move on is how can we support this campaign or should we put it in the show notes um yeah put it in the show notes so i can i can direct people to it i'm like oh okay. perfect excellent so to support dignity and dying check out our show notes and then we'll also put the the book and and the things that you have have spoken about we'll put those in there as well the links to those so from what i understand from what josh told us this is only intended to count for terminal people. So, you know, if, if we can draw that first distinction right here, dignity and dying is, and, and the bill that they're putting forward is, is specifically written to be in the last six months of life, a terminally ill patient in the last six months, a patient, person, whatever. Um. So is there any reason to believe that in Scotland, this law could be reinterpreted into crossing over between a terminally ill person. I mean, I don't really know the legal system here. So like, that's the first question I ask is like, okay, why did we make this jump? I know we, I know why in other countries, but is there a reason to believe that we would make that jump here? See, this is, yeah, this is where I'm like immensely sympathetic to the arguments um, about what's happening in Canada. Um, I, so I don't think what's happening in Canada is great, especially with Canada's history of, of uh, eugenics and, and things. Um, However, I actually don't think that we have the same reason for concern here, um, if only because basically Canada didn't introduce um, its initial dignity and dying legislation kind of of its own accord. This wasn't of the own accord of the legislature. Uh, They were actually basically forced to by a Supreme Court decision um, that was in, I believe it was in 2015. so in 2015, um, there was a Supreme Court case, Carter v. Canada, that um, challenged Canada's prohibition on um, medical assistance in dying. And the Supreme Court sort of um, basically ruled that um, it was in contravention of Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms, um, guaranteeing security of the person, that, um, that the government would not allow medical assistance in dying. Um, basically, in Canada, you have, according to the Supreme Court, a constitutional right to medical assistance in dying um, because it's intolerable government control over y- your person to prevent you from accessing this. Um, that's a, that's so a hardcore as- libertarianism right there. Like, holy <laughs> shit. Like, 
Department of Rights and Freedoms is pretty hardcore, actually. I I thought I thought America was libertarian. I thought the U.S. was like, no, I'm scared of the government, which I I thought that, you know, that's why like a lot of people in the U.S. are scared of health care in the first place. They're scared that the government's going to kill them through health care somehow. But like this is like some next level shit for like I got to hand it to Canada. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a constitutional scholar, so if I am misreading this, um, my bad. But from what I gathered from, like, skimming the Carter v. Canada decision, it seemed to be largely based in Section 7 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, particularly the part of Section 7 about security of the person. Um, so, basically, the the legislation wasn't made of the, 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 the legislature's own accord. It was made to comply with the Supreme Court ruling. Um, so, to begin with, um, having... Scotland doesn't really have a written constitution. We don't have a very uh, an ironclad sort of codified definition of security of the person. Um, so I I just don't see it going that way. And also this this Supreme Court challenge uh, or Supreme Court ruling like only had to happen because there wasn't already medical assistance in dying. Um, so kind of actually laws ma- on the books, like drawing up a, a well thought out uh, law about assisted tying might actually protect more people in the long run because if they don't put one on there, <laughs> it yeah, go the way well, I mean, Canada. What, Not really, but yeah, because you know. I mean, what's I mean, it, I mean, maybe because I mean, what's really interesting, right? Is um, sometimes when you when you make a Supreme Court challenge, either in Canada or the US, you actually get a much wider ruling than you expected. Um, so um, I think to me in the US, actually, the example that stands out the most was when um, uh, I'm just spacing out for a second. Uh, Larry Flint, the hustler guy, right? When he sued Jerry Falwell and it took it all the way to the Supreme Court, right? Um, it was over um, Hustler having had um, the quite crude caricatures of, of Jerry Falwell. Um, and this actually it, it, this actually became a, a huge First Amendment case because um, so what started as a case that like 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 in this case in Canada that started as a case of um, a, a woman, Kay, Ta- Kay Carter wanting access to medical assistance and dying and became this much larger thing. And it became not just about her, uh, the Larry Flint case that became a, a, a case about the, the first amendment and enshrining the right to satire. Now, if you'd lost that case, that would have basically said that satire is not covered by the first amendment and you don't have a right to insult people, but because he won, it took um, the right to insult people from being something that wasn't codified, but was probably covered by the first amendment to something that was like, codified as being covered so if right? that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for hustler you know triumphing over the courts <laughs> we wouldn't have the onion and satire would be dead <laughs> oh i'm sorry i find wrong, this though. i find this deeply deeply boring to talk about like just not not boring it's just that like i have trouble equating all these things in my head because i don't know the scottish legal system that well I don't know the Canadian yeah. one. I just know the U.S. one enough to know how different it is and to go. Yeah. If we're trying to equate these things, how how different is that from the TERFs and the racists? Like going, they're doing this over there and they're going to do, you know, they're going to come for you. Like, and I don't mean that to make fun of people, but like if you're constantly 
in fear of your life and acting emotionally based on that and all your political decisions are based on that. Um, that's usually a recipe for some some not wise choices yeah. in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just if I could just finish my what I was saying about yeah, the, the legal system and then I, I promise I'll stop. Um, so, so basically, um, much like the, the Larry Flint case that ended up causing just like actually like what was just a case about not wanting to be sued by Jerry Falwell became a case about enshrining all of satire as part of the First Amendment. The, this case where this woman, Kay Carter, wanted medical assistance in dying became about enshrining an, a right to medical assistance in dying mm-hmm. within within this constitutional framework. Now, she only had to do that because there wasn't legislation in place. And then it became this much wider ruling that was then challenged in 2018 in a Quebec court because the legislation God that the Canadian government brought in... <laughs> Goddamn Quebec! I know <laughs> the legislation that the Canadian government brought in only um, only allowed for terminally ill patients, uh, but the the Supreme Court ruling was much broader, which is that you have a right to choose the manner of your death because you have a right to security of your person. Um, so, the new legislation that only covered terminally ill patients um, was challenged and overturned, basically by the. The Quebec court saying that, no, this is in contravention of the Carter v. Canada decision, which is what has brought us to the point where we'll be allowing uh, advanced directives and we'll be allowing um, non-terminal patients. And and this is the concern. And I understand why disability rights groups here are concerned because um, it is they they've been, you know, if we're still in the UK and the DWP has been responsible for the deaths of possibly tens of thousands of disabled people. Um, we live in a system where disabled lives don't matter. <laughs> and anything that sounds like the government wants a reason not to care for you even less is concerning to them. And I understand that. Um, however, I think that the comparison with Canada is I've just sort of had this meandering explanation of the Canadian legal system. That isn't the situation that's going to happen here because we don't, have a written constitution that guarantees a right to security of a person in a way that could be interpreted as the right to end your own life at any point <laughs> kind of with medical assistance like that just isn't the way our understanding of the relationship between parliament and the courts works it isn't the way our understanding of um civil liberties works so i just don't think it's likely Mm. yeah um yeah i mean like again as i said when we were talking to josh i i do support medical assistance in dying because of my experience of how horrible my grandmother's death was and this it was the same for him um it just um i just do also understand why this looks quite frightening to to people who already do feel like they're being targeted by the state because of um, just like the, you know, the way that the DWP has been um, for the last 10 years. Yeah, maybe it's that, like, I have no recourse to public funds and I'm an immigrant here, so I don't expect the state to care if I live or die. You know what I mean? Like, because I'm not a citizen. 
So maybe it's yeah. more that I'm like, yeah, of course they don't care if I die. I'm an immig- I, I I don't I'm not worth anything to them. Like, not not in the long run. Not when it comes to the bean counters, right? Like, not in the yeah. not on the books, right? So like, mm-hmm. and then I have been raised to be. You know, I came from a culture where you are deeply, deeply. You know, you put in safeguards to protect yourself from from the state. Um, mm-hmm. It's funny because in America, you know, they don't have the NHS. So I'd be worried that they would fi- find new cool ways to sell it in capitalism. Capitalism suicide. You know what I mean? Like, there are so many yeah. different fears that can come from so many different angles that I find myself kind of in the center of this going, no, I think this bill kind of makes sense. It's pretty measured. And yeah. You know, yeah, no, I I think that the way they're approaching it is very measured and has reasonable safeguards and I, only being applying to terminal patients is, I think, really important. Yeah, and I do worry about, um, we talked a lot about wanting to, you know, everybody should have a good death, right? I think that is kind of the kind of talk that might alarm people because this is only going to apply to some people. You know, nobody can guarantee that you're going to have a good death. However, in these certain circumstances, if we can help take away some of the pain and suffering, we should. But it's, you know, not everyone is going to have a good death. But if, if, if you can, why, why shouldn't we allow that, you know, in, in this way? Because I really do think that maybe, maybe that's part of it. Because if you say everybody deserves a good death, it sounds a little bit like come to the carousel and Logan's run, you know? <laughs> Oh my god, yes. Oh, I love Logan's run. Oh, or like Silent Green is people, you know. Oh no, they don't they didn't want to be killed in that. In Logan's run, they're just like no. carousel. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah. It's like back in the day where like every single movie had to have a pair of tits in it. It was just yeah. you know like, oh, why? Why did she just like take her dress off? They're like, because this movie was made in 1979. You know, like, that was yes. It. yes, correct. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know if that's the actual year. Don't quote me on that, please. But like, if you haven't ever seen Soylent Green or Logan's Run, take a few hours out of your day and watch it because they're amazing. They're just, yeah, you'll get a lot of jokes and a lot of like cartoons. Actually, you're missing out a lot of inside <laughs> jokes if you have never seen them. <laughs> Definitely. There's some cultural capital you really need to enjoy pop culture, and those two films are part of it. And they are cheesy. They're not the best movies in the world, but, like, just let it marinate. I just... love I love 70s dystopia, though. There's just something, I don't know, about it that's just, like, people in the 70s had this real sense the world was ending, and the films they made were just... Yeah. yeah. I wish we made films about it when people have nervous anxiety about that instead of what's happening now. <laughs> But yeah, like, Uh, and I'm not big into 70s dystopian, but like, those are good movies. Like, I appreciate them, even if they're not my favorite. Maybe we should try and like, segue into something happier, just to have a... Yeah. I'm just gonna check the Edinburgh Live and see if that, um... We're storming the castle! It's like... I wanna see if that's still ongoing. The thing in old school, it's like, we're streaking! <laughs> we're starving the castle through the quad to the gymnasium. So is it, is it the, so... I think it's anti-maskers. It the, I was to say, is it anti-maskers or is it like fringe nuts? Someone said that, that May, the uh, 61 is a reference to something about mask stuff. So that Magna Carta 61 is like some weird ass code for 
Yeah, it sounded like sovereign citizenship, which is a lot more anti-masker. I mean, I mean, come yeah. on. We got to be better than this, people. Like, yeah, we got to be able like to make it... some rational decisions. <sighs> yeah, I'm seeing something on fullfact.org where um, they're, you know, debunking something where people are claiming that Article 61 of the Magna Carta um lets you like ignore covid regulations or something so yeah it's gonna be the anti-maxer anti i was just you know why are there still anti-lockdown protests there is no lockdown anymore literally the only regulation anymore is that you have to wear a mask in some places so yeah i guess you know what's funny to me right so these Mm -hmm. people very smartly quoted the magna carta uh I tweeted something out and I was inundated by dozens of people quoting the Magna Carta to me or going, that doesn't even apply in Scotland. Like, that's not the point. It's all ridiculous without that. Like, why are we picking up on the Magna Carta? Like, calm down. Calm down, yeah. history geeks. I know. I know you saw this documentary a time or two. But let's just think yeah. about 30 people going like, freedom during the festival. Like, <laughs> Somebody was like, I wonder if this is a festival show. And that makes a lot more sense to me than. Yeah. We're all geeks, aren't we? We're all just geeks in a different way. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I think this, you know what? If this turns out to be performance art, I will be totally about it. So good. No, I think it's a bunch of melts. (laughs) (sighs) I wonder if uh, Neil Hanvey was um, visualizing. (laughs) Visualized himself <laughs> in the castle. Yes. Oh what my was God. it called? He manifested. What? Astral projected. <laughs> yes, astral projected himself to the castle. All I can <laughs> picture is like the people from Scott Squad, like sitting there, like with a cup of coffee in their high vis jackets, and like a couple like drunk uncles, like like in like bar flies. <laughs> Like, in the middle of the parking lot, just the few, the 30 of them in that parking lot would look tiny. Be like, we're free! <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, oh uh, Scotland, I love you. Yeah, I, I do love this bizarre country. Even your crazies are just pure art. So. They really are. I mean, I guess I should be relieved that it isn't the fringe nets. See yeah. Edinburgh Castle to UDI. <laughs> oh no. Uh, yeah, it just goes to show there. No matter which way you slice the pie, there's gonna be a slice full of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh gosh. Yeah.